Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with free jazz double bassist, multi-instrumentalist, poet, and composer, Mr. William Parker. He grew up in the Bronx, and he's always been around music. He went on to study with cats like Jimmy Garrison and became a key component of the New York City experimental jazz scene and played with the likes of Cecil Taylor and David S. Ware with his quartet. He is a very introspective and brilliant poet, and he is also brimming with artistic ambition. He has a very eloquent story and thoughts on his life and music and the world around him. Please get to know Mr. William Parker and dig this interview, my friends. Hey, thank you for taking some time out for me today. I appreciate it. Oh, okay. No problem. So I'm going to just dive in right here. I always like to get kind of a snapshot. I know that you've got a lot of activity on your website. Let me know kind of in your own words, just kind of an overview of what's going on in the world these days. Right now, I'm preparing to go to Calgary for six weeks because I'm I'm a musical director, composer in residence, and uh, for Undecidedly Jazz Dance. And uh, we're doing a new piece called, uh, with uh, choreographer Kimberly Cooper, called New Universe, and I've written music for that. And it'll be running for about five weeks up at the uh, a new space they're opening, new new art space they're opening up in the city of Calgary. And so that's immediately what I'm dealing with now <laughs> as preparing for that. And then I'm also preparing for two concerts I have at the D- at Lincoln Center at the Dizzy Coca-Cola Club. July 26th and 27th. 26th, there's a small group with myself and Hami Drake playing drums, Cooper Moore piano, Kid Jordan tenor sax, Rob Brown tenor sax, and that's uh, called Cosmic Mountain Quartet. On July 27th, I'm doing a little expanded version of that group with a different piano player, with Dave Burrell playing piano, uh, Hamid Drake, Kid Jordan, Rob Brown, Steve Swell trombone, and another tenor saxophone player from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and now he's here today, called Bixashan, Lee Rossi, and he'll be playing tenor saxophone on that one. I'm, I'm going to go back to the beginnings of your life now. we got a snapshot of what's going on these days. Talk to me about your childhood in the Bronx and how you fell in love with not only music, but more specifically jazz. My entrance into jazz music comes from listening when I was six or seven, 1959, you can even say uh, 10 years old, 1960, yeah, 60, from 60 to 62. My father was playing, who was very much into Duke Ellington, and my father had two idols. One was Duke Ellington, and one was the Apache Indian chief, Geronimo. Uh, he would come home and play us Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue from 1957 live in Newport. And we would dance uh, to the music, particularly Paul Gonzalez's horn solos. And we'd listen to a lot of music in the house. Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins, Don Byers, Willis Jackson, Duke Ellington, Count Basie. And uh, then my father came home with instruments for us. He gave me a trumpet and gave my brother uh, Thomas a saxophone. And we studied those instruments, and, and I went from s- 
trumpet, the trombone, eventually in junior high school, cello, acoustic bass. I guess one of the things that happened was when we were kids, our favorite game was playing jam session. So we had these Mattel toy company made these guns called the, the Fanner 50, where you play cowboys and Indians. But instead of playing cowboys and Indians, we would turn the guns around and pretend like they were trumpets. We would play jam session all the time. That was our favorite game. So somehow it was being sort of put in my psyche about being a musician, about playing music. I didn't really get serious about it, although although later on I found out it was my father's, uh, one of my father's dreams was to have me and my brother play in the Ellington Orchestra. That's That's what he was trying to train us for to be in the Ellington Orchestra. But I didn't really take it seriously until 69, 70, when I began to listen to uh, John Coltrane's music. And I really could put together an idea of the purpose for music. And then as soon as I realized that that music was played not to entertain people, although people were entertained by it, but it was it was more idea of music was played to enlighten and uplift people to another state of consciousness. And then through listening to that music of John Coltrane and Albert Eiler and uh, Archie Shepp and Bill Dixon, Milford Graves, Cecil Taylor, I began to, to stretch and learn about art and music and dance and literature and began to put the pieces of the puzzle of this abstract language called music that you you could hear but you couldn't see. And then I, I said, well, this is what I think I want to do. I want to be a musician and make a contribution playing the bass. So I switched to the bass, cello to bass, and I went down to... Um, IS-201 to the Jazzmobile Music School, which was at 131st Street and Park Avenue in Harlem, and it was run by the Jazzmobile. The director of it was Paul West, who was the bassist for Dizzy Gillespie at the time. Faculty was all professional musicians, you know, Lee Morgan, Kenny Durham, Joe Newman, Jimmy Heath, Frank Foster, Sonny Red, Bud Johnson... Sir Roland Hanna, Curtis Fuller, uh, Benny Powell, Richard Davis, Milt Hinton, uh, Art Davis were the bass teachers. I saw they probably had more bass teachers than that. So I went there and uh, studied with Richard Davis and Art Davis and Paul West. And they were doing big band charts of uh, Oliver Nelson and Dizzy Gillespie, Gil, Gil Fuller. But my heart was into the other music I was listening to, because that's the music that the, all of those, you know, Benny Goldson, and that was good music. But the the music that was to me was revolutionary in my life in a more direct sense was what they're calling the new music, black music, avant-garde music. You know, that's where I what I really wanted to play, but they didn't really. Uh, that wasn't where you learned it. You know, you had to learn that by playing it. So I eventually, I'm putting everything into a, a, a capsule here in this long, long sentence. I eventually uh, left the Jazzmobile and began to migrate from the Bronx downtown to find the musicians who were playing the music that 
I wanted to participate in. I was doing things up in the Bronx. Since I started playing music, before that I was writing. I was writing poems. I was writing short stories and little plays and inspired by Samuel Beckett and Harold Pinter and people like that. So I was also writing music. So I had a I had a big band up in the Bronx. Eventually played at the Third World Cultural Center up there on 67th Street. But the musicians that I ran into downtown were just phenomenal because I, I went to a place called the Firehouse on East 11th Street run by a musician named Alan Glover and I met Andrew Hill there. I met Billy Higgins, and then I began going out to Billy Higgins' house in Brooklyn, St. Mark's Avenue in Brooklyn, and I began playing duets with Billy Higgins. I ran into Rashid Ali, began to play with him at a club called, which is now, used to be called CBGB's. At that time, it was called Hillies on the Bowery. Frank Lowe, Sonny Murray, Charles Tyler... 1974, I played with Cecil Taylor at Carnegie Hall. So just one thing led to another to another, and that's how I sort of began to get a foundation in the music. Because this music is something that you have you learn not by going to school, but you learn by by playing it, by playing. Because everyone's got a different method of doing things and a different way of putting their music together. And so the more people you play with, the more systems of music you learn, the more systems of improvisation. You know, I played with Don Cherry in 1975 at the Five Spot for a week. That was one way of doing it. You know, in the 1973-74 with Cecil Taylor, uh, with Rashid Ali on Tuesday nights at Hilly's. Played with Charles Tyler, who had just come back to New York also in 74. Joseph Bowie and the guys from St. Louis. Frank Lowe and Joseph Jarman. I played with Gene Lee and Gunter Hampel. Then I began also playing and interacting with Wilbur Ware, also at, at an early time. And also Ronnie Boykins, the bass player, for played with Sun Ra. John Gilmore, Marshall Allen I met. So it was really a, a, a great time in New York to be around in the 70s because uh, you could still operate. You could have a part-time job and pay your rent and operate as a musician. So it was, it was, it was a great period for me at, at that time. That was a perfect kind of tapestry to kind of wrap up a lot of subsequent questions I have. But I got to ask you, in the beginnings, were you nervous about playing or has it always been natural from the time you had those toys in your father's uh, house. I mean, has it always been a natural thing for you? Well, I don't know about natural, but I knew that whether this was pride or ego, that you know, that I couldn't, when I was time to play, I couldn't just stand up there and and, tw- and twinkle my toes. And whatever, if I was nervous, it was something I I had to overcome because it was about making, getting to the point where the music could flow. It was just very, very, very important for me to. Um, inside to, to to step up to the plate so uh, i knew that was important and it was like giving it's almost like giving a responsibility you know you're, you're given a responsibility you know to to care for something like okay i'm giving you you're, you're watching my child so now before you you know you you so all your chops come up all your senses are raised because you know you're 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 watching the child you're caring for a tree you're caring for music so i think all of that came together and and i have uh what i found 
is that uh, I really could hear music and I really had a really uh, what well, improvisational music was really my uh my forte what you call creative music or free improvised music even to the point of being able to define it and categorize it and really understand you know where it was coming from and so that was if, if there's anything natural it's the ability or desire to want to play music and then the desire to play it and that's developing it and to reach out to it to um really really get to the heart of the of of where the sound comes from to know it and forget it at the same time to not intellectualize it too much but to feel it and know that there's is an intellectual idea or intellect involved in in everything in life, and once you realize that there are things happening in your brain when you play this, when you play that, there are things happening in your system when you when you do just about everything. So there's always intellect happening. I mean that, that's like a given. It was it's still it's still a journey to 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 and a wonderful journey to continue to play you know music to find what you what a person is here to do to find out what you're here to do and what you can you know what you can do and what you can't do i mean a lot of people you know they try to play like paul chambers and so i have a student you know they want to play like paul chambers and after a while you find okay you know i've been trying to play these paul chambers lines like for all year and i can't get them what am i doing wrong and the simple thing is you're not doing anything wrong except you're not Paul Chambers. And once you discover that, that, okay, you just have to find the lines that you need to play. And we all have lines, we all have stories, we all have things that are supposed to come through us. And if we're trying to do something, someone else's music and it doesn't work, it's because simply we're not supposed to be doing someone else's music. I mean, we all have a, you know, if we're lucky enough, we have ears and noses and eyes, and, and we all see different. We all have a, what you call a musical DNA that's really what our voice is and what we're supposed to be doing. And so to find your voice, you just have to not look for it so hard and realize that whatever has been played, in, and this is a good philosophy, whatever has been played in music, nobody can play what you're going to play in the, in the next few minutes. Yeah, and that kind of like anchors you and you say, wow, you know, like, well, Duke played it all and, you know, and Miles played it. No, Miles played, with, played just, Miles didn't even tap into the mountain. Yeah, there's so much more to play in music. I mean, yeah, there's so much more. There's so, there's always more. So, so there shouldn't be any copycats. There shouldn't be any. You know, everything should be different, ever so slightly. It's even hard for a person to play the same thing they played. You know, if I play something at one o'clock and they say play the same thing at one thirty, that's hard to do. And you say it almost sounds the same, but when you listen to it. And you really say it's slightly different. It's already grown a little bit. It's all time is always moving. That's why there's no really reason to keep time because time moves itself. It's always moving. Well, you mentioned in, in the first question that I'd asked you so many people that you've played and learned with over the years, from Don Cherry to folks like Jimmy Garrison. When you were young and you were around forces, creative forces like them, what did you get from them? How, what did you learn that helped you in your career? Everybody was different, and I knew that, like, when I met John Gilmore in Sunrise Orchestra, I met them up in the Bronx, in Marshall Allen, and, and I, I had been 
you know, listening and had a core African instrument from Gambia. And I heard somewhere, I read somewhere that Marshall Allen was repairing Cora. So that's why I went there. And I showed him the Cora and I said, oh, you know. And they were like looking at me like I was the first person in the world they had ever met. And that they said, wow, you know, they, they were saying, well, what can we learn from William? You know, it wasn't like sit down and young, so let me show you something. It was like, what can we learn from William? And they were just so nice and so open. So that and that idea is okay. Then I'm going to be make sure that that's part of my personality too. When I start meeting young people, always have time for them. Always be polite. Always, you know, uh, extend an, an extra go an extra yard to make sure that they get their questions answered. And then Don Cherry was the same way. Don Cherry was always, you know, you'd be on, on Lower East Side, and one day you see Don is coming down, he's roller skating in a multicolored sweater with a hat with a propeller on it. And then the next time you saw him, you know, he's wearing a poncho, and he's got boots that are 40 different colors, and he's, you know, always riding a bicycle. So so Don, so Don's always wearing colors. So then you say, well, every time I see Don, no matter how I feel, after I leave him, I feel better. So I said, okay, that's important, too. You know, that after you meet somebody, they speak to you. After they leave you, you want to make them feel better. So that's also a great quality, you know, to exude and have. And then you read about John Coltrane, how you hear stories about he always would talk to young people and always would, you know, let you sit in and, 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 and just exude enthusiasm and support for people. So all of these things you learn, uh, I learned from uh, different musicians, of how they acted and how they treated each other. And it was, and of course, some didn't do that. Some were, you know, not so nice, but then you, you, you just didn't do that. Some had tempers or some yelled at people and some were temperamental. But that kind of thing is, okay, well, I'm going to be temperamental because this guy's temperamental. No, you, you just take the what you consider the good aspects of their personality that inspire you and make you feel better, and uh, you leave out what you want to leave out. And everyone, of course, has a different opinion about this. But from my point of view, always about uplifting people in the melody, you know, in that conversation and finding the melody. The same as finding a melody in music. So let me ask you this. Another very important component of your very long and fruitful jazz existence has been your life as a poet. How has being a poet helped you as a musician and vice versa? Well, the idea is, like you take a line, you know, you know, there's a line I had, you know, like stepping on flowers and not knowing you're stepping on flowers. And the idea is that there's poetry everywhere. There are flowers growing everywhere. They're giving, you know, the, the earth is always giving birth to life and light. And so to find this sort of singing or poetic idea of things in everything you see, to bring out the, 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 the good in things, in people, to, to, to reflect things that people can read that will, again, uplift them, again, bring them into a poetic state. Because it's during this poetic state, it's like people say, well, like a baby can fall and he, the baby's loose 
so he doesn't break his, his his arm because when he falls, he's flexible, he's loose, he's he's not uptight. While if, if a glass which you br- drops on the floor, if it's not doesn't bend, it cracks. So and, and but in that poetic state is when we grow, is when is when we change, and so everything in a poetic state becomes larger than what it is. We begin to see. You know, there's an idea of, okay, uh, bird, I just use, use this a couple of times, you know, bird is poem in the sky, and the sky is always beautiful. And, and, that, and that image is such a great image because it's like, no matter where you are, you know, you can be, and this comes from the idea, you know, you're working in the cotton fields, and you're working, you know, you're in the fields of Vietnam or someplace, and you stop for a minute, and you look up at the sky, it's beautiful, and it's beautiful everywhere in the world. It's always a poem in the sky. It's consistent, and so it's poetry is what softens our heart. Poetry brings the beauty out in us. Now, and I was in junior high school once, and I remember you know, they kept talking about the president going to Camp David for vacation. And then I, I said, well, you know, art is supposed to inspire, and, and poetry is supposed to uplift people. So a guy goes to Camp David or he goes someplace or he's got he's got original art in his house, full of original art. Then he comes back on Monday and says, okay, well, I'm going to bomb this country and I'm going to bomb that country and I'm going to cut these people's benefits and I'm going to make sure that these people, you know, are executed in this prison. So, like, if art is supposed to change you and people who have money and have opportunity have all this beautiful art around them, how come it doesn't soften them? And what I realize is that they think the art was made for them. You see, they think that they own the mountain. They own the sky. They own the rivers. They own the beautiful trees. And so they, it's just, it becomes oblivious. The, the beauty of that flower bounces, just bounces off of them like it never existed. So I think a poetry is really the, the, the element that opens the door for us to, 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 to see the light. And, uh, and this, and, and also poetry is not just rhyming poetry. There's melodic poetry. There's poetry. There's abstract poetry. I think what, the recognition of when something's a, a poem, poem is just another word for saying something is beautiful. You know, when 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 you're you know you're hungry, and you're on the street, and somebody says, "Hey, come to my house, man! I'll give you a Sunday dinner." That's a poem, and they're putting that food on that plate. Every 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 little bit of food is like a a piece of that poem, and the poem is called. I love you. I'm sharing this food with you. And, uh, you know, on and on. That's beautiful. That really is. I love that answer. So what I want to know, you know, you played with what the world would consider jazz heroes. And I want to know, who are your jazz heroes? I I suppose I have to go back to my original entrance into the music. And I would say... Ornette Coleman, and the reason I say Ornette Coleman because when I first came listening to the music, I listened to a lot of Ornette Coleman. When we were going to school, we listened to Ornette Coleman in the morning before we went to school. We'd come home and listen to Ornette Coleman. Just everything about what he did was was an inspiration to me. You know, the the, the music, 
the words, the philosophy, and so it's very, very, very strong influence on my idea of what could be done in music, the possibilities, and I always came out thinking clearer and brighter after I listened to Ornette Coleman. It was really like a, a lifeline, I'll say that in public. Uh, and also uh, the music of Albert Eiler was uh, was very uh, influential on me and very uh, in a personal personal way because he was he was uh, really connected with Albert Eiler and um, I would say if I had to name there there are certain aspects of everyone's music that I that really had a personal uh, effect on me. And, uh, you know, Don Cherry, Cecil Taylor, uh, Milford Graves, Bill Dixon, Sonny Murray, uh, Rashid Ali, John Coltrane, Alice Coltrane. There's so many people. But if I'd say one person uh, in my embryonic coming to be as a person... um, that I always could go back to 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 listen to get that uh, uplift. I, I I would say there's one particular record, and it was by uh, Joseph Jarman actually, called "As If It Were the Seasons," on Delmark, because on that he laid out for me everything possibility of expanding the idea of poem, of sound, of melody of expansive rhythm, of space, all in that album. And it was uh, very much uh, one of the um, most perfect albums uh, in my world at at a particular time, as well as uh, Bill Dixon's Intents and Purposes and Cecil Taylor, Conquistador, John Coltrane's uh, Ascension, the Bobby music by Milford Graves, and many, many other things. You know, Jazz at the Mass, text or composition written by Lalo Schifrin with Paul Horn. I was a movie soundtrack guy, and uh, that's, uh, you know, Quincy Jones, The Deadly Affair, French composer Maurice Jarre, the other French composer George uh, Delarue, who did movies for with Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard, John Barry, who did uh, Born Free as well as James Bond movies, and Neil Marconi, who did um, all the Italian spaghetti westerns, and and a lot, of many, 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 many soundtracks. I mean, all of this stuff. In, in fact, everything I listened to influenced me. And at the time I was listening to it, had an uplift and an effect on me. You know, there's things, you know, you're standing on the street corner popping your fingers. But if you're standing on the street corner and you're popping your fingers and you're listening to Count Basie or you're listening to Oliver Nelson, you know, then it's just a little bit more of an uplift. And then if the sun is coming through the clouds and it gets later on in the day, and you put on Ornette Coleman at the Golden Circle, that's another thing, and listen to a ballad. So music was a 24-hour soundtrack for me. You know, Curtis Mayfield, everything I listened to, the Modern Jazz Quartet, 
Archie Shep for for train on this night. Uh, Gratian Moncourt the third, Frankenstein, Roswell Rudd everywhere. Uh, Giuseppe Logan, Giuseppe Logan Quartet, Lowell Davison, Piano Trio, Paul Blay, Frank Wright. I mean, all of this music was was to me was a was a blessing that I was blessed enough to be able to to listen to, and uh, and then eventually down the line participate and play with some of these musicians. So any kind of music can uplift you and take you to the to the tone world and to the other place where you need to go to really uh, find another self, which is your real self, and then you can begin to see other dimensions of yourself and inspire people. And, and also, to, again, defining music as anything that's beautiful, that music is one part of music is sound, but music is anything that's beautiful, poetry, dance, literature, gardening, building, carpentry. There's music in all of these things, architecture. Let me ask you this. It's a general question, but I'm curious. Why do you love jazz? You know, I don't know if I call it jazz. You say, why do I love jazz? But it's that, I mean, I I love people. And, and you know, I love music because music is is coming out of people. It is part of people. You know, they say the body's made up of, of 80% water. I think that people are made up of, of uh, 90% music. I love music. I love the idea of improvisation. You know, when we used to get up and, and listen to people like Miles Davis and, and um, Kenny Durham and and the Art Blakey and all the music that was coming out of the community and that was coming out was just great. You know, Louis Armstrong. I mean, it, it was it just it's it just part of us. You know, part of everybody. You know, jazz, music, whatever you want to call it. It's part of it's something. It's the missing link from our life that we have to have. That whether we know it or not, we have to have it. And it really is is just a uh, a catalyst for our growth as human beings. And so I I love it because it's an exhilarating feeling about it. Listening to uh, Hampton Hawes or. You know, Andrew Hill, Dave Burrell, I mean, everybody's just, it's all beautiful. It's all beautiful. You know, I mean, but, but we, we come out of clans. You say, you know, just because you say, well, I like Bill Dixon doesn't mean I don't like Clark Terry. It just because I, I, I say, well, I like uh, David S. Ware or Matthew Ship. You know, it, 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 it doesn't mean, you know, I don't like Albert Daly or Cynthia Smith, or Lonnie Liston Smith, or I don't like, uh, or Roger Calloway, you know, who's on the Sonny Rollins record, Alfie. I mean, we play some beautiful stuff on that. So, I mean, it's like, if you got to be honest, you can't just say, I like one thing, or, you know, you say, well, I play this because I I come out of this particular clan. I play fast and loud and hard because I come out of the fast and loud and hard clan. And this guy plays melodically because he comes out of the melodic clan. I love the melodic clan because, and we're all family. We're all family. And I think that the the, the family that I come from musically, they never have any problems with what you call avant-garde or out music. 
you know, or they don't have any problems with listening to Tito Puente. I mean, Cecil Taylor listens to opera. He listens to Cecil. He listens to Tito Puente. He listens to Zanakis. He'll listen to bebop. He loves Billie Holiday. He loves Marvin Gaye. You know, so it's just like on the other end. It's always like, whoa, there's a problem. Here come the out guys. These guys are avant garde. There's no melody. There's no this. There's no that. But when you listen to, uh, you know, you can listen to some music from from uh, Africa or Asia, I mean, you know, that music is accepted. So I, I don't know what the big deal ever, I know you didn't ask this question, but we got here, you know, about avant-garde versus straight ahead. I mean, everything is straight ahead and everything is avant-garde and everything is is and isn't, you know, connected. I mean, it's, it's, it's all that people are connected to the music. And so it, it, I like the people, I like the music, but you only end up doing what you think you can do best. And you say, well, I just can't play bebop. It's not, I don't, I, I like when you play it, but I'm not going to play it because that's not what I think I was born to play. I was born to play this. You were born to play that, but I, but I love what you do. And that's kind of how it is. But uh, I, I, I think music is just very important for our lives, whether it's jazz or whatever you want to call it. You want to categorize it. You want to compartmentalize it. But but if you say jazz in a classical sense of, of, of what we know and musicians saying the word jazz to themselves, then it's, it's something special because it's got a certain quality that uh, no other music has. It's not mass produced. It's individually produced. And I think that's one of the things that makes it special. Absolutely. I love that answer. Let me ask you this. When the world peels back the pages of poetic history and jazz history, and they come across your name, how do you want to be remembered? If I'm remembered, which which would be nice, I suppose, I just want to be remembered as somebody who is able to play some music and communicate with people, to talk to people, and to spread, I was someone that was spreading a message of of love and peace, and uh, truth and hope and joy in people's lives. That's that's what I really want to be remembered as, or just someone that played music. And then when you listen to the music, then you can, you know, say if if there's still music around, you know, uh, recordings of it, that uh, you know this, you know, that people form their own uh, idea of who I am. I wouldn't be there anymore. So it's like uh, hopefully a form of idea of, of why we're living here and uh, how they can also make a contribution as others did before them. And if I was one before them, then uh, hopefully they understand that it was you know, it was about music and sound and, uh, and about people. That's beautiful. I think that kind of sums and wraps everything up for me. Thank you for being so generous and warm with your stories. And I, I have no doubt that what what you give to the world is pure love and, and it's been a joy to talk with you okay thank you very much thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another neon jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in the bronx kansas city and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz and thanks to william for his essence his music and his great story if you want to hear more interviews go to famous interviews with joe domino on the itunes store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz until next time enjoy the music my friends
Neon Jazz.